Hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto back with our dysfunctional panel of experts to tackle yet another topic near and dear to the Chicano Latino community, the abolition of police across the country. The past two weeks have created unprecedented upheaval in the United States as hundreds of thousands of people in cities across the country have taken to the street and demanded in no uncertain terms that police be held accountable for their actions. As fate would have it, the city of Minneapolis, where police officers murdered George Floyd, is currently having an open city council-level discussion on disbanding the Minneapolis Police Department. In addition to our regular cast of dysfunctionals, returning to the reality dysfunction today is Dr. Serene Sadeh, a colleague of mine and a longtime Minneapolis journalist activist who will be talking to us about what is happening on the ground to defund the police in that city and some of the pushback organizers there are experiencing. Let's get to it. The last couple of weeks have been a wild ride. I mean, the things that we imagined or never really imagined could happen, like a real conversation in this country around defunding the police, a real conversation in this country around uh, abolitionist principles in terms of thinking and rethinking uh, the incarceration of millions of people um, and how you know, communities of color are, are patrolled uh, on a daily basis is is actually taking place, particularly uh, in the city of Minneapolis, where George Floyd was murdered and killed. Um, that city council there seems to be taking, you know, the lead. And so I'm just going to throw it out to to all you all. I mean, we have these conversations every week. What does it mean for the Chicano Latino community to see the end of policing as we know it in the United States? I think it's about time. We have all been present and seeing how our communities have been affected from the regular police to ICE and everything else in between. I think we need to just start thinking out of the box and, and what does that mean for our communities? What are we envisioning for our communities as we go do this? And that's going to be a long process. It's not going to happen overnight or next week, but here in New York, they just repealed 50A, which basically uh, police officers and their infractions are going to be now made public uh, because before they were being hidden and you couldn't see that information about uh, complaints against officers. So it, it's a step in the right direction. And now we're talking about defunding. And uh, one of the proposals here is to stop the funding of any technology and new cars for the police department. And I think it's a really good first step, but it needs to go much further than what they're talking about right now. I mean, to what degree is it really the end of anything? And, and the same thing for change. You know, I'm trying to be optimistic, but I'm also skeptical about what change is going to come out of this. You know, you guys maybe saw the news reports where, you know, there's a big deal made out of the fact that the Flint police chief you know, went to one of the protests and marched with the marchers, which I've heard the, the guy talk a few times, and I think he's, he's an okay guy. But, um, you know, like today in the news, the, um, there was a protest in Saginaw over the weekend, and um, there was a guy from the Thumb, and that's literal for those of you who aren't from Michigan. 
there's a part of Michigan that looks like a thumb, and that's what we call it, the thumb. So there was a guy from the thumb area, which is almost all white. Um, he came to the protest in a truck with Texas license plates and flashed a gun at the protesters. Um, the police in that township um, identified him. Um, then that's about it. I guess he's going to be charged with brandishing a firearm, but he wasn't arrested, and it's not a very serious charge at all. So, you know, on the one hand, and, and that township's police also joined that protest, you know, but it's just more of the same. It's like, okay, what am I supposed to be optimistic about that specific? I think, like, what's going on in Minneapolis with um, some of the things that the Minneapolis City Council has been talking about, I think that's concrete change. But there's also been a lot of attention given to the police who are just showing up at these protests. So, you know, I'm, I guess I'm kind of, kind of in a gray area in a in an odd space with everything that's going on right now. Um, but I'm trying to be optimistic because, yeah, at least we're having a lot of conversations um, that needed to happen. I would have to say, Lopez here in Southern California, I, I kind of I can see Danny's point, you know, and I I concur with him. Ask, you know. Is the police one of those entities in our society that's too big? Is there just too much tied into it now that defunding it would just have repercussions across the board and impact community, you know, in indirect ways and indir indirect ways? Um, so I would have to say, is the question defund the police or should we add to it prosecute the police? Would that bring about the changes that we're after. I'm not really sure. What do y'all think? Well, in Minneapolis, and, and I'm, not, I'm not from the, uh, the Tano Latino community, so I'm just going to speak from my perspective in Minneapolis. Unfortunately, we've, we came from this high of a uh, supermajority of the city council talking about defunding the police and, you know, uh, like really well thought out vision um, and even funded visions for what the alternatives are to even just in the last 24 hours seeing um, like re-understanding and re-feeling the strength of the systems that we're coming up against um, in terms of like the ways in which both um, conservatives and liberals hold up white supremacy in different ways, the ways in which our state legislature is not designed to make things like this happen, the ways in which even the city charter is working against us. So as much as I feel I don't know, as much as I want to feel hope in the work that's happening, we're seeing so much resurgence of that, um, like the, those who have more like systemic power than us in the last 24 hours and, and feeling like in a lot of ways we've actually taken, I mean, we maybe haven't stepped all the way back, but we've definitely been knocked back a couple of feet since we started all of this. Could you give an example of what that means when people are showing what their systemic power is? Like yeah, so I'm going to, um, the, the largest foundation in the city of Minneapolis is the Minneapolis Foundation. It's headed by the former mayor of Minneapolis, R.T. Ryback. The decision was made today by the police chief to exit negotiations with the police union around the contract, which is a win. That is a huge win. It, for me, the actual bigger problem than the police um, department is the police union. 
um, because of just how much power the union has over the control of the department. But the Minneapolis Foundation, which has the resources to distribute to our communities to help create space and foundation for so much of the work to happen. And, and I shouldn't say I want that work to happen through the nonprofit structure. I don't, but they have money and they can use it is using it to support the police department in, um, in its break from the police union and to support the organizing around that, those kind of more minor police reforms. Um, it's a resurgence of that nonprofit complex and the ways in which for two weeks now, the work that was happening in Minneapolis was completely void of nonprofit leadership. It was community leadership, it was community centered, it was community space. And really just in, like I said, the last 24, 48 hours, these nonprofits have retaken their hold over these movements and the direction of these movements. And I think that's incredibly harmful. And these are coming from, right, R.T. Ryback was DFL Democrat, former labor endorsed. I mean, and he's pushing that. Or we have the state legislature is coming back for a special session that was already on the books before all of this because of COVID-19 and everything. And suddenly they're talking about how Minneapolis City Charter you know, there needs to be legislative discussions. There needs to be all these things. So there's a lot of kind of the moderate liberals and then the Republicans upholding all of these already existing problematic and oppressive systems. Um, and it's pushing back and pushing down the work that's happening. Sanctuary Hotel um, was out of a decommissioned Sheridan. It's owned by a construction architecture firm here in the Twin Cities. Uh, member OD'd there two days ago, and now all 200 residents of the Sanctuary Hotel are being evicted. I mean, it's just, we're really just seeing these systems replay themselves out, and they're working really hard to take over the work that's happening. No, I was just sitting, sitting here thinking and listening to her talk, and it just kind of occurs to me that policing really permeates all the issues that we've talked about uh, on this podcast. Look at the role police play gentrification I mean there's a, they're the muscle behind the business um, business folks and wealthy that push gentrification look at the role they play in education um, this came out of education week I was reading this today so I pulled up the article um, 1.7 million students are in schools with police but no counselors 3 million students are in schools with police but no nurses Six million students are in schools with police, but no school psychologists. 10 million students are in schools with police, but no social workers. So, um, okay, here's a, here's a, you know, a, a guess. Give me a guess. Somebody give me a number here. How many states do you think met the recommendation of one social worker for every 250 students? Out of 50 states, how many do you think met that, met that mark? Mm -hmm. Zero two. Yep, zero. Not not a single one. Um, well, I just thirty three percent of schools reported that they don't have a nurse nurse on staff. And see, so, I, I mean, think, just you know, it permeates all those issues. What? And I think the other thing that it really that it really speaks to is this: is as the share of population that the percentage of of the share of population for white people decreases that what we see is an increasing uh, militarization of the police. We see an increasing of police presence. We see an increasing funding of the police. I mean, these things are not, um, they're not separated from each other, right? I think the other thing that's really important to remember is this, is that liberal democracy, like we live in, 
I guess, um, has within it, has built within it, right, a, a certain level of protest. We expect protest, right? We, we expect that people are going to voice their displeasure, that they're going to, to gather, you know, in petition the government in a redress of grievances. I mean, that is an expected thing. What I would say is that even as uh, much as what happened last week, right, if we're talking about real societal change, that level of uh, interruption clearly can be absorbed by democracy, right? So what level of interruption actually needs to happen in order to make real change so that, you know, a week later, people don't, you know, come back and they're not all like, oh, you know, we're getting all this pushback. And really what's happening is, you know, this uh, nonprofit industrial complex is reasserting itself, right? How do we bring about, how do we raise a level of disruption that makes it impossible for the nonprofit industrial complex to reassert itself after a week? I mean, these are, these are questions, right, that need to be, that need to be thought through. Um, and I think that it also goes back to, you know, what Danny was just saying, the police play a role in that. There's a, there's a mainstream, there's, there's an effort to mainstream the argument around defund the police, right, which is tied to greater investment uh, in community, greater investment in social services, which I think has been pretty striking. Um, just the fact that there is a constituency out there for defunding the police um, that is being listened to in a serious way. I mean, we were also seeing just sort of the knee-jerk reaction to that, a knee-jerk authoritarian response to the idea, uh, the very concept of defunding police. But there's also talking heads on the um, major news networks that are trying to explain it in a way that is that um, is in line with some of what's been discussed here, right? More funding for education, for social services, for, for whatnot. So, I mean, that's clearly happening, right? The, um, the system is, is adjusting to the demand in a way that makes it, uh, that works within the constraints of uh, neoliberal democratic society. But it's still a shocking development, I think, to see that that constituency exists and is being amplified by some, by, by a lot of major media news sources. I think there's a lot of opportunity for positive change. There's also a lot of reasons to call, uh, you know, bullshit on a lot of this. You know, we're not seeing, you know, ICE is still operating. There, there are yet to, there's still, uh, there has not been a connection between, uh, a mainstream connection between the activities of ICE and the way that uh, immigrant communities are being, um, persecuted in the way that the um, police, uh, you know, has persecuted the black community and the Chicano community. So I think, you know, those are, those are steps that still need to be taken to, to move that, that agenda forward. But I'm still surprised by how rapidly the, the conversation has shifted nationally. And I would agree with uh, Brother Ray is here. What I think is interesting is there's a lot of uh, support for the protests there's over 50% support for the protests, for um, some of the, a lot of the issues that are being brought up. But at the same time, it makes me think of immigration reform. And when you look at immigration reform, how much support has been behind it where the general population and the voting population supports and believes in 
immigration reform. However, has it come about? It's just become another wedge issue. And, you know, it makes me feel, you know, it's the policymakers, the ones that are having the cold feet and the ones who, I don't know, is it not beneficial to them? And um, again, the too big to fail? I, I agree that the ways in which we're seeing the system replay itself and and just kind of accept what's happening and readjust itself. But I, I do want to also say there's been some incredible work that has happened and that's being stuck around. Like University of Minnesota has uh, has its own police department, but has ended its contract um, in many ways with the Minneapolis Police Department. The speaking of cops and schools, uh, Minneapolis Public Schools had it a formal contract with the Minneapolis Police Department for the SRO program from the 1990s, but it had been informal since the 1960s. And for the first year ever, starting in the fall, there will not be that formal SRO program in the schools. Now, some schools, and actually schools specifically um, in communities like North Minneapolis, which are predominantly Black, Indigenous, and POC, are actually wanting to keep those resource officers in the schools in terms of school leadership because of the relationship that they have with the students, but that formal SRO program and the money that goes into that program will no longer be there. And, and it's not a significantly well-funded program, so the money won't be able to go far, but they can hire about 10, according to a school board member, about 10 social workers for Minneapolis public schools um, by defunding the SRO program. So, I mean, there are some serious conversations happening and it's not that, it's not that adjustment from the system isn't happening. There are things that are happening that are, incredible wins. It's just that the vehemence of that adjustment in the last 24 to 48 hours has been like whiplash for a lot of people who are coming down from this high of a super majority on the city council making this decision to, you know, that same sort of just the, the power dynamics reasserting themselves in all new ways or in all the old ways all over again. Hi, this is Juan Carlos. I, it's very interesting, the whole conversation, because I, you see these headlines that say the Minneapolis Police Department is going to, you know, lose a lot of funding or all its funding. But then, you know, as the story continues to develop, we don't necessarily get an update so that, you know, the general media doesn't necessarily give an update and then people stays with the notion that the police department is getting either defunded or whatever, when in reality, the chief walks out of a meeting, right? And, you know, it, it, it's important that the news that are going out there, which is why it's even more relevant, our conversations in this podcast to bring another perspective, is that we need to change the rhetoric, right? Because when we look at what happened in DC with Mayor Bowser putting a beautiful sign that says Black Lives Matter in front of the White House, everybody's like, oh, wow, how wonderful. But in reality, when I look at what the people that are on the ground doing, they say, and in reality, the act was intended according to the government to honor protesters who had peacefully assembled earlier in the week. But then Black Lives Matters DC has always said that Mayor Bowser has had an antagonistic relationship with the organizers in the city. And to a point that she has been consistently on the wrong side of Black Lives Matters DC history. 
But then the media just showcases, right? The beautiful Black Lives Matter sign right in front of the White House. But in reality, it's just art washing. It's just a, a showcase, like a title. Because when you go and look a little bit further at what Black Lives Matter, which by the way, they fixed the sign three days later and they say equal, defund the police, right? And then when you look at uh, Black Lives Matter's DC specific demands, they're all centered on police and criminal justice reform, like defund the police, no new jails, decriminalize sex works, police-free schools, drop charges against protesters, ban, stop and frisk, and more. Those are all very relevant issues to Latinx communities because we are at the same. So it's, you know, what there's been happening, I don't know, I feel like there would be more of a Latin, Latinx, Latino presence in, you know, on this Black Lives Matter. But again, I think it reflects the lack of a national, at the national, not the local or regional level, leadership to take this political stance. I, I agree 100%. I agree 100%. Was somebody else going to start to say something? Oh, I was just, this is Alex Janish. Um, I was just uh, wanting to come on. I'm really excited about all the demands that are happening you know, defund police, but I think that there's also a conversation that's going on about abolishing the police, and I think that's really exciting as well. And uh, I don't know if y'all looked at the, I forget which group put it out, but they put out the eight things that are going to, um, the eight the eight demands for the Minneapolis, and I think those are really exciting, but conversations here specifically in Denver are going around abolishing the police, and I think in order to have that conversation, we have to talk about um, changes in our understanding and relationship with property specifically, because uh, you know if we do defund the police and abolish the police, there's still the systemic violence that's happening by the state, not just by the police. Um, you know, houseless folks not having a home. Um, what you know, they're still criminalized every day, and if there's no police and we don't give them homes, like what's really going to happen with that. So I'm really excited to see where the conversation goes beyond defunding the police. I understand education um, is, you know, where a lot of that money is going to go. But I think uh, in order for this to really work, that there needs to be a conversation nationwide about uh, our understanding of property or, um, you know, recommonizing spaces. You know, uh, I don't know if anyone saw in Seattle, uh, a group of protesters has taken over a quote autonomous zone in Capitol Hill in Seattle, which is you know the downtown part, which has long been gentrified, um, that only politicians and uh, tech people can really afford to live down there. And now there's uh, a very large space that is um, apparently autonomous from the police of Seattle, um, and they're opening up that space to houseless folks and other people and uh, trying to do something different with property. And I'd love to hear what, if anything's happening like that in other people's cities. I'm gonna jump on, this is Alejandro. Hopefully the background noise isn't too much. And if it is, just stop me. Uh, thinking, thinking about these big, big issues, you know, this connection with property and, and thinking about the history of the police and, and the historical origins of the police. I think, I think there's definitely some parallels there in terms of policing black bodies 
treating black people as property, which, which has this history, this deeply rooted history in the United States that we need to reconcile with. And, and I don't necessarily mean us on this podcast, but, but in terms of this national conversation to, to put Black Lives Matter without this recognition is to miss that, that origin. And where, where I find it's so exciting that we're talking about abolition now is, is in the sense, and I, and I sent this to Ernesto an hour ago, this, this conversation to me when, when I first heard people talk about abolition, when I first heard people talk about defunding the police, ending policing, uh, 25, 30 years ago, I, I thought, wow, this is a really radical fringe notion. That's never going to gain traction. And so the exciting thing for me has been in this past you know, two, three weeks, we see how it's moved to the center. But, but I want that analysis and that connection that recognizes that the policing, the police state, this carceral state that, um, and I'm, I'm by no means an expert in this field, but, but the idea of the carceral state, you know, this is what's, this is that engine that's driving production this is touching every aspects of our life this is this is something that's crossing borders in terms of immigrant detention in terms of employment in terms of of resources that are being funneled but it's also tied to the military the presence of the military in the united states on a global sense is doing the work of the police in a domestic sense and so when we're talking about the funding for education, when we're talking about diverting those resources, how do we, you know, let's look at those budgets. And it's just, it's mind boggling to see how much Oakland PD or San Antonio PD gets, the, the San Antonio Police Department, you know, the, the, the scale, those, those infographs that people send out really just brings it home. How skewed and distorted the scale is. And you realize this is happening all over the place. And yet teachers are, you know, bringing their own pencils to school and doctors and nurses are having to make gowns out of trash bags and we have unhoused people. And yet here's this, this moment of possibility. I think, I think that's where these, these symbolic gestures can become meaningful in terms of the claiming of space, in terms of saying, well, let's divert these resources. Let's shine a light on this. The, the police have already shown us where they're coming from. When they, when they push over a 75-year-old elderly, elderly man and 57 of them walk out in approval of that action and then they're met with applause, they're doing that work to show us where they're coming from. And I think it's up to us to keep reminding that there's another way forward. Absolutely. I, I think that, there, there's, that we're in a moment of great possibility in terms of the actions that people take from from this point forward, um, because you know the the gauntlet in some ways has been thrown. I think that it's also really important for us to think about how it is that we go back into our communities and have conversations, real conversations, about state-sponsored violence. Right? I mean, there's a reason that police officers aren't put in jail when they murder somebody. It's because they are literally carrying out the, you know, an execution by the state. The state will not jail itself. The state will not do something, will not pass a law or make a rule that endangers its own survival, right? So once we begin to, I think, really understand that and to internalize it, then what we also understand is that because we have a, a conflation in this country of democracy and, and capitalism, 
that uh, property becomes property becomes paramount, right? And then people are outraged. They're outraged that a window is blow, broken, but they're not really outraged that a black man was killed by the police, right? Because one of them is supposed to happen. The other one isn't, right? And I mean, how do we, I think that part of, part of our challenge in the work that we all do in our, in our regular lives when we're away from this podcast, right? Is, is how do we take that message out into the community? How do we begin to, to politically enlighten or educate other Chicanos, other Latinos about what, what the role of the state really is and what it always has been for the last 500 years, right? It's one of conquest, it is one of genocide, and it is one of appropriation. I mean, literal appropriation of the land and of the people that live on the land. So, I mean, I, th I think that that's also a big part of this, you know, and just really understanding that um, a couple riots ain't going to do it. Uh, it. They just ain't. That's, that's not what's going to make the change. Long-term, low-intensity organizing in communities with a, a real education program that uh, pushes populations to mobilize around, um, you know, significant, significant issues. Uh, that's what I hope comes out of all this. The changes need to come at the local level. Um, start there because each community is going to have different, you know, needs. But in reality, it can, it's a long process. And how do we educate our Latinx communities about living in a society without a police? What will that look like, right? Are they gonna feel like, oh, we're gonna be robbed or, you know, or are they gonna feel okay with it and, or see a modification of what the police department looks like right now? One of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about, first of all, I wanna recommend a resource in response to all of these comments. Um, MPD, um, so Minneapolis Police Department, it stands for MPD 150, which is a 150-year retroactive review uh, from the community of the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, not just the report, but all the resources, the audio, um, but it's basically a project that um, it made of researchers and organizers and activists that um, looks at the history of the police department that looks at, um, uses public art and education and political action and cultural activism to tell the story of police abolition and um, police reform and defunding the police and tries to provide a, an alternative vision. Um, it's an analysis that looks at the roots of police brutality and racism um, in the foundation of the Minneapolis Police Department and at how to um, like respond to what it calls frivolous arguments um, like around like all cops are bad and the argument that we need to be able to respond from a more like kind of foundational and systemic perspective rather from this individual perspective and this person to person perspective. But it was done predominantly by black indigenous and POC leaders here in the community. Um, and it talks about uh, transitioning to a resilience based Minneapolis um, and the work that it would take to get there. So as we have all of these conversations, I want to recommend this as a resource. It was uh, well-funded for a project of its size. There was, um, it's a lot of history and it talks about vision, it talks about moving forward. And I think it's an incredible source um, of information to help us talk about what this looks like. Um, and, and I wonder, 
Todd, just in terms of what you said around the level of disruption that's needed and how you came back to that, we might be closer to having an answer around that just because there there have been so many that I you taught me about hegemony and it's the idea that ideas have power and ideas become real. And in the past week, what we have seen, even if we haven't seen this, you know, the actual systems change, we've actually seen values and ideas and thinking and vision around police change, at least in Minneapolis. And maybe not in terms of that kind of hegemonic, like at its roots change, but in our community discussion, there has been a radical transition in how we talk about the role of police and community and the ways in which everything is happening. I mean, I'm, I'm receiving emails from hotels that I stayed at 15 years ago saying, this is what we're going to do to show that Black Lives Matter. These are how we're going to divert our resources and do these things. Uh, I mean, everything is changing on a visceral level and in a re really radical way. So I do think we have a clear, more clear idea about what level of disruption is needed, but we also are seeing that the level of disruption we had was enough to quite literally radicalize and reshape how we think about the role of police, at least in Minneapolis. If that's the case, that's something for us to learn from in other communities. I think you're, I think you're right. I think the only thing that I, that I would say, and, and this isn't in dispute of anything that you said, I would simply add all of that happened because of a process. I mean, even if you just, even thinking about this conversation, Alejandro just said a second ago, when I first heard about prison abolition 25 years ago, you know, um, <clears throat> when we think about uh, the work or even what Teofilo was saying a while ago, he's saying that he's somewhat surprised by the, the level of inclusion uh, of the message, you know, by, by mainstream media. I mean, those things aren't happening because of, because of riots. Those things are happening because of long-term work that's being done, right? Minneapolis happened because of Ferguson. It happened because of Black Lives Matter. It happened because uh, the NAACP in the 1930s were hanging window banners that said a black man was lynched today. Um, I mean, these are... These are things that that have been that have been growing. I think that um, I think you're right, absolutely about you know we get a clear vision. I mean, one of the things that that really never happens in this country is a real challenge to authority. We do not challenge authority in the United States, and I'll offer this as just one example. The biggest conversation that you hear in any election year is well, I guess we just have to vote for the lesser of two evils. Okay, well, I'm sorry, but that is not a position that challenges anything. But that is our default political position in this country. There are always people on the fringe, and this is one of those moments where the fringe, because of the, the work that it's done over the last several decades, has, um, has allowed it to has push itself into the, into the mainstream conversation. This is the same thing with Bernie Sanders. How does a man who is an avowed socialist almost become president of the United States? I can tell you how all the other neolibs drop out so that one of them can get enough votes 
to beat this guy. I mean, that's that takes time. That is that is long-term planning, and not just on the part of the Sanders campaign. I mean, that is long-term attrition in communities where people who consider themselves socialists and people who consider themselves Marxists have continuously put forward this vision of a different way of, of doing economics. So I hear what you're saying, sister. And, and like I said, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I just, I would put the emphasis more on the long-term uh, grassroots work that people have done um, starting I, yeah, in the 50s. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that's absolutely accurate. Um, I also think that there, there is a, a moment in time. There was the, the cliche, the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, we might not know all of the straws that were on the camel, but there was something that happened that caused this radicalization, at least in, you know, in Minneapolis where I'm located. So I do think it's a result of this history of the work. You know, for a long time, I I did, I've done a lot of immigration justice work over the years, and I've done a lot of work, a lot of food justice issues, and I'm seeing more and more that we need to have that sustained low-intensity organizing. We definitely do. But we also need to have, uh, we need to be prepared to create more high intensity work when it happens. And I, I credit a lot of what's happened to the capacity for everybody who was organizing to, to be prepared for that moment. Um, and also to have the knowledge systems in place within community to be able to say, we're going to move into this riot and revolution space and then we're going to move back into this kind of low intensity revolution space and to be able to be well-adjusted enough to do those things, um, which I don't necessarily think I'm making sense, but just to say, yes, it's a process. It's also a moment in time that happens, and it's also the capacity for all of us to be prepared for both the process and that moment in time that allows for where we are now to be happening now. Yeah, I and, agree. and I think, you know, white people, people in power are not going to roll over and be like, oh, sorry, my bad, here you go. Right, it's gonna mm-hmm. <laughs> it's gonna be that consistent, constant, and we've talked about it here, right? The the push on the local level, as well as us coming together on a national level. I mean, one can't happen without the other. Um, and I think we just need to continue what we've been doing, and it's not gonna happen overnight, next week, next month, right? It's it's gonna be an exhaustive battle. One thing that I've uh been thinking about is what is this what we know the police are a reactionary force and like the the police unions are among the most reactionary right and um, they've been very aggressive in their support for um, uh, the, for the Trump administration and it's clear you know this this moment has been very clarifying and seeing a very um, you know it's hard to say whether it's a majority but very a very strong constituency a strong support for uh, Black Lives Matter and now for um, for defunding the police and is that going to carry over to November or, or is this you know form the basis for dramatic civil unrest where the police really are um, on the front lines of defending the uh, Republican administration I think that's something that I'm you know been thinking about and are we really prepared for that if that's the case I mean, I don't think we're prepared for that, to answer that, but I think that's something we should be preparing for. I thought that was a rhetorical question. That's, yeah. No, I don't think that we're prepared for that either. I think that we, we exist in a, in a state of political naivete that um, 
you know, allows us to believe that even if it's at the very last minute, somebody will respect our so-called civil rights or our so-called human rights, so, or that we maintain a sense of outrage when those things are, are violated, as opposed to recognition that we never really possessed those things to begin with. I mean, we say we're indigenous. We say that we're the, the descendants of the survivors of genocide. I think that we have a hard time really grasping the, the actual significance of those statements. The, one of the biggest ones being that these guys don't work for us. You know, and so yeah, I feel you, homie. I I think that that you're I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that we're prepared for this at all. I think, um, and I think that's part of why you see what Juan Carlos was talking about. I was very shocked too by the lack of participation um, by Chicanos and Latinos. I know that they were out there, but it was. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of us. It could have been it could have been a lot bigger, but it wasn't. And I think it's because we're not prepared. I think Teo dropped the gauntlet. That's the big question. You know, you're you're talking about human rights, respecting our rights. We're talking about humanity. We're talking about centuries-old dogma and belief systems that that are willing to commit genocide. You know, that's that that logic's still there, even if we don't talk about it enough. Indigenous people are survivors of genocide already. This is this is a knowledge. That took place and that's and that's really the terrifying thing you know is is the military going to come out and say we're we're sticking with our guys are the police well the police have already made this clear in a lot of ways the, the heads of the police union you know the force the, we back the blue that thin blue line all that all that stuff you know i'm not i'm not saying anything new here as far as that goes i think I think that's where it's so important right now. Even even if these are incremental things, just to remember that what we've had has been stripped from us. And and even during this past four years, during this administration, we saw how quickly things turned. And I think to not get comfortable with promises of incremental change, because we've seen how quickly things can get taken away, how things can get broken down. I think we need to always remember that we can also build stuff up just as quickly just as rapidly we we have the discussions we've had the conversations people have been doing the legwork the groundwork for for centuries really um, and that's and that's something that keeps me going even even though i do feel disconnected from a lot of the stuff going on i think that's also also a part of this larger picture larger the part of part of being that larger part of being a part of that larger conversation is to know that I'm not alone, to know that we're not alone, to know that there is more of us than there are of them. Not not to be reductive and sort of that us versus them mentality, but but in some ways, yes, you know, if you're if you're supporting this guy, if you're if you're comfortable with police violence, if you if your mindset says to prioritize the safety of property and, and, you know, keeping the windows clear. And, and if this is your priority at the expense of human lives, then, then yeah, there's no, there's no room for that discussion. And I think, I think putting that out there and seeing just the, the extent, the overreach that we've seen, you know, with all the cameras in front of the world once again, because this also isn't something new to us. I think that's a crucial reminder to say, you know, why why stop that abolition? Why stop at defunding the police? Let's let's 
keep thinking. Let's let's build those connections. Let's build those alliances. Um, you know, the, the solidarity is powerful is a slogan that's been around for a century for a reason. That's that's to me an important thing right now. Um, I, I didn't mean to start going off on that. I, th I think <laughs> I think we were going on a let's wrap it up thing, and then I just. I caught up in the moment, but it's all, it's all right, homie. Well said. Well said. I, I, I enjoy this. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> this is this is my piece. <laughs> for, anybody for the coming month? Anybody want one last shot at the at the boys in blue? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller. Well, for there me, there's two two issues that stay on my mind, um, and I, when you think about the possibilities, so I think there may be a group out there. And uh, we've seen those groups. Uh, they are definitely organized. Um, but if you defund a police, and as you defund a police, are you going to have groups pop up that are going to say, okay, so then we have to police ourselves. I'm going to police my own. You know, so we're back to like militia style. And we know, you know, having grown up in Michigan and been aware of uh, the militias do, do exist throughout, you know? Is that gonna be another issue that comes up? You know, is that gonna create other tensions, put us towards a, another step towards a civil war, you know, in its, within itself, you know, inner, inner problems um, being the issues? That's one issue that I think about. How many of us uh, can carry? You know, how many of us can shoot? How many of us routinely um, go to the range? I don't know, there's other issues that come up. And then the other issue that I think about is with the union. And being an educator, and you know, I understand the power of unions. Having grown up in Michigan, I understand what the lack of a union will do to an industry, GM. How's that gonna impact, you know? Oh, I definitely do feel just like I know in education, there are some educators who, you know, would do great service by uh, exiting stage left, right, to our communities. I'm sure that's the case in any other job, but I do think about, are we going to attack a union again? And then is this going to be somehow going to weaken a very essential uh, component of our society and that social component to society. If we think about it, isn't that what we, one of the things that we want to push? So I don't know. That's just another issue that pops up. Anybody have any thoughts on those? I mean, the thing that what you said makes me think about immediately is I think it's, I think it's absolutely a question of political responsibility. And if we as a community want that responsibility, right? I mean, that's, that's really a question. I mean, maybe as a community, we'd much rather have somebody else handle that responsibility for us, that responsibility of, you know, quote unquote, safety or order, right? As opposed to maybe we're not ready for that, like politically. Maybe we're not uh, mature enough politically to have those conversations among ourselves and to, to take on that responsibility. I mean, it's, it's entirely possible. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what you said. That's what it made me think about. I think to address the police union, um, I think that it's a different 
I mean, that, that, that's the police union is not recognized under the AFL-CIO. Like they're seen throughout the labor community as uh, there. I guess there is APSME that does the a couple of police unions, but they're not recognized as a part of the overall labor movement. And I think that's because people know whether they say it or not that the police is a managerial class that um, it's not necessarily a worker. Like police. Police are, police are a managerial class, no matter how you look at it. Um, the lowest police as well as the highest police, um, they're all just managing capital. And I think that it's important to, you know, whether in whatever community you're talking about, like what does it look like for that we manage our own communities and our own community safety and just getting rid of the police isn't really gonna necessarily do that. It's gonna require uh, housing and healthcare and education and things like that. Um, Oh, also, I just wanted to say um, in reference to the militias, I think that's uh, a really important point as well. Um, like if we get rid of police, does that just mean techno capital feudalism that takes its place? I was just going to say in Minnesota, actually, two of our biggest unions, um, the Teachers Union, Education Minnesota, and then AFSCME both came out. Um, and the AFL-CIO, um, they all came out and they disavowed. Um, the police union um, in Minnesota, which I think is pertinent when we think about just the ways in which the police union operates, especially now that the police union has come under so much fire and is being really um, reconsidered. And, and I do think there's a fear, not in terms of the police union, but a fear just to saying, if we give state actors power over how the unions operate, when does that spread beyond the um, police union, which needs to be rethought and reconsidered if not completely disbanded because there's a lot going on there um, and when does that spread to something like the teachers union or the labor or any of the other labor unions um, and that's the fear but there is um, the unions themselves have disavowed the the minneapolis police union that is all we have for today the police are controversial both in practice and in discussion the patrolling incarceration and murder of black and brown bodies is a foundation of this country I hope that the recent rebellions represent a leap forward in the way everyday people think about their relationship to the state and to each other. As Chicanos and Latinos continue to scrutinize these very important topics, those of us on this podcast want to urge all of you listening to be vigilant about the narratives around the police and participate in your local efforts to defund the police, abolish the police, and the carceral state. Until next time. Hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.